All right. <clears throat> Announcements. Just a reminder, the Chafer Conference starts a week from Monday, and we need volunteers in a lot of different areas. So I don't know if they've got a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall yet, but we need volunteers to bring many, many th- important things, including what? What Cookies, that's right. <laughs> have to have that magic word, cookies, as well as many other uh, food items for the, for the conference. Also a reminder that Daylight Savings Time starts a week from Saturday night or Sunday morning, actually technically 2 a.m. Sunday, March 11th, right before the conference. Also, uh, uh, we're pulling together more details on the Israel trip. Several people, I think we've had six people sign up for the Israel trip in the last two weeks. So if you are considering it, do not dawdle. Do not, you need to redeem the time, as the scripture says, because we will need to close down registrations probably in the next three or four weeks. So we need to uh, people need to make decisions and make, make um, and sign up. <clears throat> okay, that should do it for the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we must be in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. We, that is referred to as fellowship, but it's not just a static position. It is an active position of walking by means of the Spirit, enjoying our relationship with the Lord. And so we always have time uh, before every Bible class and church to give people the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just such a wondrous thing that we can come together to study your word, that we have copies of, of the word translated, reasonably good translations of your word into English, that we can read it, study it, that we can memorize it, and we have access to it. That's a tremendous privilege for us, and to be able to freely come to an assembly where we can study your word and be taught the word. Father, we're thankful for the freedoms that we have in this nation. We continue to pray for our uh, political leaders, our our civil leaders, those from the local level all the way up to the uh, national level in Washington, D.C. We pray that you would provide men and women who understand understand truth, understand the objective reality of truth and the foundation of truth, that they might uh, be solid servants in Washington, especially with the election coming up uh, this year for the midterms in Congress. We pray that you would provide uh, strong leaders during this time of the primary season through the spring and summer. Now, Father, we pray for us tonight that we might focus upon your word and that God, the Holy Spirit, uh, will teach us, illuminate our minds to the uh, to understand your word, and that we would be responsive to what he teaches us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> yeah, just a reminder that early voting has started, and it started this last Tuesday, I believe, or am I right? Yes, this last week was the week before. Anyway, early voting has started, and it goes into next week. And then that's it. And then the election is on March the 6th. Now, we get into an important Texas season of holidays right now. Tomorrow is March the 2nd. Back when America was America, or America, as LBJ would say, we had a holiday on March the 2nd. But then 
people in Washington decided to accumulate all these holidays and people in school districts decided to give everybody a, a spring break and people got away from it. These holidays were important because they were opportunities to teach about our history and to teach about uh, freedom and and liberty. When I was in school, when most of you were in school, if you were in Texas, <clears throat> into Texas Independence Day, which is March the 2nd, and San Jacinto Day, which is April 21st, were holidays, school holidays, and they were times of great celebration. March the 2nd was celebrated with fireworks and other celebrations, just as July 4th is celebrated. But we've lost those values because less and less do we truly teach the importance of liberty for the individual and the principles of freedom on which this nation was founded. So it's important to be reminded of those things. And then uh, on March the 6th, I guess, no, I'm corrected now, I've got my orientation. Tomorrow is March the 2nd, so I think tomorrow's the last day in early voting. And the primary is Tuesday. I was getting that date confused in my head with when the Chafer Conference started. So Tuesday is the date of the primary, and March the 6th is what date? What? Tuesday. Tuesday. Well, what's important about March the 6th? That's right, that's the day the Alamo fell. Again, an important uh, principle, an important uh, <clears throat> event in history uh, that eventually led to the defeat of the Mexican army under San- Santa Ana at San Jacinto on April the 21st. And so uh, we remember these things because it teaches us that our freedoms and our liberties were purchased by uh, men and in modern times women who gave their lives for our freedom, our freedom and our privilege to vote and to uh, be involved in uh, politics and to be involved in a self-governing nation which cannot survive without citizens who have a solid base of morality and integrity uh, in order to vote wisely and not be swayed by uh, false information and... um, those who are corrupt and would serve for their own ends. So we need to remember these things. The foundation, of course, is always the truth of Scripture. So tonight we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, continuing our study, and we'll begin to get into verses 4 and 5. And so the issue here is really accountability, that there will be accountability eventually. Some people will have some accountability sooner than others, but eventually all will be held accountable for the decisions they make in this life. We had a famous Baptist preacher in the early part of the 20th century named R.G. Lee who preached a message that was published in back in the day when people published their sermons and that they were read widely, and it was the second most important um, sermon ever preached in American history, our most influential and widely printed, and it was called Payday Someday. It's interesting that the first, the most significant sermon that was ever printed and published in America also dealt with the theme of eventual divine judgment. And that was a sermon that probably some of you, I know I did, studied in college literature. It was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I remember that the uh, instructor who taught that English class had no clue what he was talking about, had no concept of of Puritan theology that informed that uh, particular message and just totally butchered it. But Nevertheless, two of the most significant, influential, most widely disseminated, published sermons in America uh, were both on this issue of judgment, that God is a God who will judge, the, as we read in this passage, the quick and the dead. There will be accountability eventually. Now, in the context, 
Peter is emphasizing that there is to be a break, a distinction between the believer's life after salvation and the culture around him. It's the same thing that's stated many, many places. Jesus talks about it in terms of discipleship and the commitment that one makes when they want to follow the Lord. Now, that is not the same as being saved. Salvation and discipleship are not synonyms. Discipleship is the commitment of an individual believer to be a follower, to be a student of Jesus. And people have different stages as we grow of our realization of that commitment. And we we increasingly, as we grow, we decide to continue to press on or we decide, well, I know enough and I'm satisfied with, with where I am. And so we see the same thing in Romans 12, too, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the re- renewing or the overhaul of our minds. We have to identify all of the garbage that's in our soul and our thinking and our mentality, and we have to flesh it out. And the only way to flesh it out is to replace it with the truth of God's Word. So we need to understand that. So there's a distinction between the way the Bible-believing follower of Jesus is going to think and the way all your friends and neighbors and family thinks in many, many cases. And that's what Peter's addressing here is that conflict that comes for each person when they are at odds with their peers, with their professors, with their uh, family, and how we are to take our stand for the truth and how we are to react and respond to those around us. And so the part of the problem that these believers had, they came from a Jewish background, but nevertheless they were influenced to live a life like the Gentiles that surrounded them. And that was a life that was characterized by uh, these six terms that we studied last time that are found in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse, verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That is, the will of the Gentiles pressuring everyone to conform to the Greco-Roman culture. And as a result, they had a lifestyle that was characterized by these six terms, which is a lifestyle that focused on <coughs> Physical sensuality, uh, sex lust plays a big part in behind each one of these. A lot of that was involved in the fertility religions, the, which was the prosperity gospel of that, that era, the gods and goddesses that would promise you that if you worship them, then they would m- make your businesses successful, they would uh, <clears throat> make your crops fertile, and you would have... Uh, uh, an abundance in harvest, and that you would therefore be financially uh, healthy, if not wealthy, and that that would all be provided. And so, the way in these fertility religions that you were stimulate that you stimulated the gods to uh, make you fertile uh, in your crops was to engage in sexual activity with the temple prostitutes in order to. Uh, give the God sort of an object lesson in what they were supposed to do in making your your crops and your business fertile. And so the drunkenness here, although drunkenness is prohibited in Scripture, drinking of alcohol is not, but the drunkenness here in connection with these other terms was probably, we should probably understand all of this to be operating within the framework of their religious system. But nevertheless, these same ideas operate just as, uh, just as popularly in circumstances of just secular atheism, uh, which, of course, secularism is a religion. Even the Supreme Court ruled that it was a religion back in the early 70s. And so there's no such thing as a non-religious or a religious system. Everything is religious. And so... Uh, these were the things that were characteristic of the lifestyle of the culture, sensuality, lust in all of its different categories, but contextually it was primarily focused on 
sexual lust, physical lust, drunkenness, uh, carousing, and drinking parties all involved. Uh, for example, in the worship of Dionysius or the worship of Bacchus, who was the god of wine, the way to be spiritual was to get drunk. And then the, if you got drunk enough, the spirit of the god would enter into you, and then you would speak in some form of ecstatic utterance. And you can see where that would get kind of get confused in the minds of some people that that was what Paul talked about or what some Christians talked about as speaking in tongues. And so in speaking in tongues, biblically, that's speaking in known languages, and it's not motivated or determined by somebody's uh, uh, imbibing of alcohol. But this pseudo-tongues, this false tongues, dominated the Greek culture in the worship of Dionysius, in the worship of <clears throat> of the um, of various other uh, mystery religions. The Sibiliadis cult was, was another one, and th- this was typical of the priests and priestesses in those kind of, of religions. So these things were all interconnected with the idolatrous system of that time. So in verse uh, 3, Paul, I mean Peter, makes a clear break. And then he says, um, we spent enough of our past life in doing the will of the Gentiles, and then there's sort of a parenthesis describing that, and it says, in regard to these, now the these refers to these activities that are listed here and are listed in verse 3. He says, in regard to these, they, that is the Gentiles, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation and uh, with the result that they speak evil of you. So the first thing that we see here is that um, they think it's strange and it's, it's, it's foreign to them. The word that is uh, translated uh, being strange is the the part of that word is zina, which is where we get our word, uh, the Greek word uh, for a foreigner, and where we get our word xenophobia, which is the fear of other races. Okay, so that's the idea. It's something very, very strange and foreign to them that... uh, they, do, as believers, do not run with them uh, in the same flood of dissipation. So the response of the unbeliever to the believer who has either be converted to Christ, to Christianity, or they are a believer that reaches a point in their early spiritual growth that they realize that they are to live differently than the unbeliever, and when they start to change, then those around them think that they are strange. They may think they have uh, uh, lost their mind. They may think that they have uh, become very confused or that they are part of a cult, uh, all kinds of things like that. And I have known uh, people whose families reject them when they become a Christian uh, and all kinds of things are said about them, and a lot of slander and a lot of uh, verbal abuse and teasing and ridicule. And this is especially difficult for young people, for those who are in junior high, high school, college, because the, at that age you're so susceptible to a lot of peer pressure, and suddenly you are being different. And at that age, there's such a pressure to be the same, to go along with the uh, with the crowd and what all your peers want you to do. And so they, um, they are often maligned and ridiculed by the unbelievers. And so what's necessary is to have that kind of resolve 
that Peter's talked about back in verse 1, the resolve the mind of Christ. And this same kind of thing was happening in the first century uh, when the family unit was so much more important in that culture than it is today. And so families would have traditional family religion. To break with that was uh, on the order of turning against your whole family. And so when a, if a family member broke the ancestral traditions of their family to become a Christian, then they were viewed as making hostile, judgmental statements about the rest of the family. That idea is not that foreign from our culture today, that if you become a Christian, then you have, uh, in some places, you've just become very, very strange, and you've turned against all of your friends. Um, Back then, Christianity was new, and so that was viewed as some new novel religion that wasn't established, and so you were viewed as being uh, extremely strange. Not only that, but Christianity differed from all of the other religions in that it emphasized that Jesus was the only way. There was an exclusivity, and unbelievers have always reacted negatively to the claims of Christianity that they are the only way. Jesus is the only way, that he made a claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That just slaps everyone who's not a Christian right in the face that everything they believe is wrong and they are going to suffer an eternal condemnation. And so there can be this horrendous reaction against a person because they turn to uh, turn to Christ. In the ancient world, they were often uh, identified as atheists because they believed in only one God and they rejected all of the gods and goddesses in the uh, polytheistic religion of the Greeks and the Romans. Same kind of thing has happened in other polytheistic cultures because what they tend to do is you come along and you preach Jesus and Jesus is God. They just take the 99 gods on their shelf and they move them over a little bit and then stick Jesus up there. And Jesus just becomes another member of the pantheon. And so this was what Paul ran into in uh, his missionary journeys in uh, proclaiming the gospel to the Greeks in in Asia Minor. Uh, In places like Lystra and Derbe and Iconium, uh, they would run into this problem and they would be uh, teaching some new strange idea and it wasn't uh, the popular view of the time of polytheism. So they were declared atheists, and this was one reason that eventually Christians came under uh, came under persecution from the Roman government is because everybody was supposed to swear allegiance and worship the divine Caesar, and if you rejected Caesar as God, and which any Christian would do, then you would be viewed again as an atheist, and you're a danger to the stability of the Roman Empire. So they would be attacked for this. They would be viewed as a threat to the culture, as a threat to the stability of the nation, and so they would then revile and ridicule Christians, not to mention the fact that a Christian who is now walking with God enters into the angelic conflict, and they are now a visible, physical representation of the righteousness of God. And so those who are uh, pagans have rejected the righteousness of God. They're uh, fulfilling the uh, description in Romans 1, 18 to 20. They are truth suppressors. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and therefore the vi- uh, visible, physical representation of somebody who is talking about the true and only God convicts them. And so they want to get rid of those people and not have them around. So the presence of a believer was a point of conviction, and so they would react against that. And the result was that believers would be ridiculed, they would be slandered, they would be spoken evil of, which is the word blasphemy that we uh, see a little bit later on. So in regard to these, they, that is the unbelieving Gentiles, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same 
flood of dissipation. Now that's an interesting image there. The first word is flood. This isn't just describing the culture as having dissipating events. It's not just a party now and then, maybe Christmas and maybe one other time during the year and they go out and they party and they get drunk, but it's viewed as a flood. It is overwhelming. It is the dominant view of the culture to be involved in all of these activities most of the time. This is what they did if they had any time off then this is what they would be involved in. And they would go worship at the temple, which is where they could get, they would just have an orgy as part of their uh, religious practice. So the word dissipation, so I think is a, probably the best English word. We'll look at this in a little bit. But the Greek word is asotia. Now this is an interesting word. We're all familiar with the Greek word for salvation, sozo. The word for Savior is soter- soteria. The word here, the root word here, the S-O-T, is from that root. So to have health, to have that which, is, uh, which produces health, that which produces a quality life. But with that A at the beginning in Greek, that's like the English prefix U-N. It makes it a negative. So instead of that which is healthy... It's that which is not healthy. And what is not healthy is to give your life to a lot of uh, unhealthy, sinful practices that make war against the soul and destroy the health of the soul. It doesn't annihilate the soul, but it, it destroys its ability to think, to reason, to think objectively, all of the things that come as a result of the believer who learns the word and grows. So the word uh, dissipation is, uh, has various uh, meanings in English that are described, reckless living, an abandoned, dissolute lifestyle. Somebody just gives themselves over to freely fulfill all of the lusts of the flesh. Uh, profligacy is another word, and we'll look at the definition of that in a minute, and prodigality. That's the word describing the prodigal son. Remember the uh, the parable of the prodigal son, and the prodigal son comes to his father, gets his inheritance early, and then he just goes off and he just wastes it. He wastes it on parties and getting drunk and all of the physical pleasures of life, and he ends up broke, and he ends up hungry, and he ends up living in a pigsty where uh, he was begging for the same food that the pigs get just to survive. And that's what prodigality is. It is someone who has just wasted everything that they have on their own sensual pleasure. The ESV translates this as debauchery, and the, Revi- and the uh, Revised Standard Version uh, translates this as wild profligacy. I find that profligacy is probably not a user-friendly word for most people, and debauchery may not be a user-friendly word for a lot of people who are debauched. So, what do these terms mean in English? Debauchery is excessive indulgence in sex, alcohol, or drugs. That's the Concise Oxford English Dictionary. I find that that's rather limiting. You can uh, overindulge in many physical pleasures. You can overindulge in food. You can overindulge in alcohol or tobacco or drugs or, or just personal pleasure, those things that just make you feel good. And that is debauchery. Dissipation, again, it's an overindulgence in sensual pleasures. So I think that's a good word. I don't think it's a good, it's that uh, under, well understood of an English word for a lot of people, but that's what it is. It's just an overindulgence in sensual pleasures. And then profligacy means reckless or wasteful. And that brings in an important idea that dissipation doesn't necessarily communicate. And that is just wasting whatever resources you have just on personal pleasure and feeling good and leading to uh, 
probably a lot of self-destructive behavior, especially in the area of sex, alcohol, or drugs, but it's much, much more than that. Now, we have this word dissipation used in a couple of interesting passages. The first is Ephesians 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Now, we have a pretty good idea of what dissipation is. It's just a waste of your resources, waste of your life, and different in fulfilling certain uh, sensual pleasures. So there's a contrast here. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a verse I've spent a lot of time on in the past, haven't taught on this in a while. I mentioned it not too long ago. But you have a contrast here with being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. And so for many, many years, you'll hear sermons, you'll hear people preach that the point of contrast here has to do with control. Okay? You've heard many people use the word control to describe the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. I remember one one time at a pastor's conference in 1974, Jim Myers asked the question, is it control or is it influence? And the answer was, it's influence. Control means it takes over your volition. That's part of the problem with understanding wine as in that way. The the two phrases, with wine and with the Spirit, are both datives in the Greek. And so it doesn't have to do with content. It has to do with means or instrumentality. Using wine in a, as a means to an end. Using, and then the Spirit is a means to an end. That's what uh, instrumentality means grammatically. If you're talking about the content of something, in Greek you would use a genitive. So this isn't a genitive. And the reason I I point that out is because a lot of people get the idea that when they're filled with the Spirit, they're getting more of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's filling you up. And that would be the idea that would be expressed in a genitive. For example, if if I've got my coffee mug here and I want you to... Uh, f- fill it with coffee, then I would uh, use a genitive. That's called a genitive of content. But that's not what we have here. We have a an instrumental dative. And what that indicates is means. So instead of saying, fill my cup with coffee, which is content, that'd be a genitive, fill my cup with that pitcher. So it's the you're focusing on the means by which something is being filled, not the content of the filling. And so it is the Spirit that fills us with something. What does the Spirit fill us with? Well, if we go to the parallel passage in Colossians 3.15, Paul writes there, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the content. How do we know that those are parallel passages? Because the results of letting the Word of Christ dwell within you are that you will be thankful, you will sing praises to God, uh, husbands will love your wives, wives will submit to your husbands, children will obey their parents, parents will, um, will love their children and teach them and raise them in the admonition of the Lord. All of the results that flow from Ephesians 5.19 down through about 6.9 are the results of being filled by means of the Spirit. And those results are the same results that are given in the verses following Colossians 3.15. So that if in one place you have be let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, and it produces results 1 through 10, and in another place you have a different command, but it produces the same results 1 through 10, then those two things must be related. And when you pull those together, you realize that in in, uh, Ephesians, Paul is emphasizing the means of filling. 
It's walking by the Spirit, not going engaging in pagan rituals of drunkenness as the means to get close to God. And in Colossians, it's a different issue. And there he's talking about the importance of the Word as the content of the filling. And so when we put those together, what we learn is it's the Spirit who fills us with God's Word. In contrast to some other methodology, like getting drunk and thinking that that by doing that, you get to become one with the God, with Dionysius. So in Ephesus, as well as in Corinth and other places, they worshipped the wine God. So that's the background, the cultural background, for understanding that passage. Now, if you look at the immediate context, which I'm putting up on the screen in verses 15 and 16, Paul is still talking, as he has since three, uh, four one, excuse me, four one, about the Christian lifestyle under the metaphor of walking. He says, "See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise." See, he's contrasting two absolute states: you're either a fool or you're wise. There's no, uh, you're not a wise fool or a sophomore. You're either walking as a wise person or you're living or walking as a fool, uh, one or the other. So then he's going to describe what characterizes these two lifestyles. The wise person who is walking circumspectly redeems the time. You walk circumspectly. How? By redeeming. It's an instrumental dative. You do it by redeeming the time. You're not wasting time. Wasting time is dissipation. So it's important to learn to manage your time. We only have so much time, and we have to learn to manage it and use it in an effective way. So that is part of describing this lifestyle. And then we get into 17, and another way in which we... um, walk circumspectly is that we are being filled by means of the Spirit. And then that wise lifestyle is what is described as a result of being filled by means of the Spirit in the following verses. Now another verse that uses the word uh, here for um, dissipation, asotia, is found in Titus one six. And in Titus 1.6, he's beginning to describe the qualifications of a leader in the church. And here he uses the word episkopos, which is a bishop. But the qualifications that are listed here are the same qualifications. They're parallel to what is described as a presbyteros or an elder over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And there's a third word. So you get three different words for these church leaders. You get the poimenos, the shepherd. You get the, or pastor. You get the bishop, episkopos. And you get the word, um, you get the word elder, presbyteros. Now, those three words are describing the same person, but from different points of view. The pastor, the shepherd, is the leader who feeds the sheep. That's emphasizing his what his primary duty is, is to feed the sheep. The episkopos is a term for an overseer, so that emphasizes his responsibility as a leader to oversee a congregation, and it fo- focus is on that, that leadership aspect. And then the word presbyteros, which means older, isn't being used in a in a sense of a physical age, it's used to describe spiritual maturity so that he is a mature individual in, in uh, Scripture and in the Word. So uh, this should characterize a, the family of a bishop. He, should be, he personally should be blameless. He should be the husband of one wife, which means that he is loyal to his wife. It does not mean, and there have been numerous studies of this, that does not mean that he is only married one time. There have been people who've taken that view. I knew a Greek professor at Dallas Seminary who was well-respected by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, who was always uh, considered one of the better professors at, at, at Dallas Seminary. 
But he took this to mean that as an elder or bishop, you could not remarry even if your wife died. And so when he remarried after his wife died, he resigned from being the elder of, of uh, Believer's Chapel. But he was still the primary teacher on Sunday morning. In other, you know, I always thought that was weird that he resigns this position of being an elder. And that's some of the strange different nuances you get in different areas of church government. But the focus here, he's husband, he's loyal to his wife. It's not making any comments about whether he's been divorced or whether he is um, remarried after, after the death of his wife. It's talking about being loyal to his, his wife. And then talks about his children, having faithful children. Now, this doesn't mean that he has to have children. Some people take it that way, that you can't be a pastor, you can't be an elder unless you're married and you have had only one wife and you can't have any, you can't be without children. And that is just hyper self-righteousness and legalism. Uh, it is not what these phrases mean. So, uh, but his children should not be accused of dissipation. So that does not refer, the word children there does not refer to an adult child. It refers to children that are still under the authority in the home, that you're not letting them run wild and being undisciplined so that they fit the category of, of dissipation or insubordination. So you have to, that, that all shows that as a father, if you have children, that you understand how to be the spiritual leader in your home and you have instilled those values in your children and raised them up accordingly. Now, I know many pastors, I know many people, in, even in this congregation, I know many people of, of, of a certain generation who have had children, one, two, or three of which have completely rebelled against the training that they had growing up. But that rebellion was not manifest until they were out of the home. That This is not talking about that. This is talking about those that when, you are, when a, a father has authority over his children and they're in the home, that they are not wasteful, they are not uh, indulging their uh, fleshly lusts, and they are not insubordinate toward authority. Now, back to 1 Peter 4, 4, so you don't, your life isn't characterized after you recognize what the Christian way of life is really all about with that same uh, wastefulness that characterizes the the Gentile population that is just wasting their resources on their own fleshly desires. It's total self-absorption. And so the response will be, they will speak evil of you. And here we have an example of the verb blasphemeo being used of not toward God, but speaking evil toward you as a human being. It's the idea of slander. It's the idea of ridicule. It's the idea of mocking, uh, making fun of, all of those things that are part of uh, those who want to run, uh, run you down verbally. So this is what happens. So this, is this just? Is this fair? No, it's not. And we get the idea when we watch this happen, we see things happen to uh, Christians from those around them as they are falsely accused, as they suffer for doing right. Um, for example, verse back in 317, it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so that we see Christians who suffer for doing good, and we just we rebel against that. We say, that is not right. How can, that per, how can God let those people get away with it? And we think about persecution. We think about these, these um, uh, ISIS radicals over in Syria and their horrible persecution of Christians and they, uh, the beheadings and the rapes and all of this, the enslaving the uh, Christian women and all of these things. How can they get away with this? Where is the justice uh, of this, and we can think about many situations in life where people seem to get away with 
being unrighteous and unfair and hostile, and they've done uh, many things. And that's why Peter says in the next verse, they, that is those who have done these unrighteous deeds, those who have treated the righteous unfairly and abused them and and persecuted them and uh, physically abused them, that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We face a world where there are many, many injustices. We can think of many different examples of people who are in power, uh, people who are uh, who abuse that privilege and that power to the harm of the weak, the poor, the marginalized, uh, those who differ in political perspective. We can think of different tyrannical uh, re- regimes where the citizens and the people have been uh, tyrannized and they've been imprisoned and they've been beat- beaten and they've been tortured and they've been killed. And we say, how can God let that injustice go by? We can think about the Holocaust. Over six million Jews were killed for the only crime was being Jewish. When you look at the Nuremberg trials and other post-war trials of war criminals, only a very small percentage of those who were responsible for the arrest, the persecution, and the death of those uh, six million Jews and the many others who who survived who were imprisoned and tortured, only a small percentage were ever held accountable. There's an estimate that at least 9,000 Nazi war criminals, those who were responsible to one degree or another for the Holocaust, escaped to South America after the war. And I think that's a low number. But there were many, many others who stayed. They were hidden by their family and friends in Germany. And it just did, we just didn't have the manpower to investigate and to track down every single one of them. And every now and then still, there are those who were guards and those who were responsible for these unspeakable acts that are even now identified, arrested, and have been tried and found guilty in just the last few years. But those numbers are diminishing. And it's often we say, how could God let them get away? Well, what Peter is saying here is God didn't let them get away with it. They will be held accountable. And we always have to go back to the character of God, that God is overseeing history. He's letting evil run its course in history, and eventually God will end evil, and he will bring condemnation and punishment to evil. Genesis chapter 18 is where we need to start when we start uh, thinking through the character of God with result of people getting away with, with evil and how God deals with evil. Genesis 18, if you remember, is when the uh, God and two angels come to Abraham. And they come, and uh, Abraham sees them. He's staying at the uh, Oaks of Mamre uh, down near Hebron, and he is waiting for these these men uh, to come. And so he has a feast for them. It takes some time, and he they rest. He gives them water to cl- uh, cleanse themselves, to wash their feet. And then after the meal and after they've rested, you have this conversation that takes place uh, between God and these two, uh, two men, apparently men who accompany him. They're not men at all. We find out later they are angels. And in verse 17, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Obviously a rhetorical question because he knows that he will not do that. He's, and he goes on and he says... Um, talks about uh, Abraham, and he says in verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken. So God is righteous and God is just, and God is concerned about that which is righteous. 
And so he begins to tell Abraham about the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah and that he is going to do something about that. And as he describes the uh, way in which he will bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham becomes quite concerned because even though he's had conflicts with his nephew Lot, he knows that Lot and his wife and their daughters live in Sodom, and those are his nieces. And so he uh, doesn't think that this is right of God to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And so he begins to ask God about that in verse 23. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous. Notice how he is laying this argument out before God. Suppose there were 50 righteous. Would you destroy uh, that place and uh, and spare it for the or spare it for the fifty righteous that are in it, and it works his way down. And then, in ver- but in verse twenty-five, he raises the issue. He says, "Far be it from you to do such a thing as this to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked." Far be it from you. Shall and then he asks the important question, rhetorical question: Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer that is assumed is, yes, the judge of all the earth will do right. And uh, it is tr- in um, some translations, it's translated, I think this is New American Standard, do what is just. God will always do what is right and just. That means nobody gets away with it. There are always going to be consequences, either here or in eternity, for actions. So that's got to be a foundation for our thinking as we think through this issue. That is what is the backdrop for understanding what what Peter is saying here. He is saying that these Gentiles ridicule you and abuse you and they make fun of you and all of these things, but there is a time when they will give an account to him who will uh, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I always like the King James tra- translation, the quick and the dead. They will give an account to him who is ready. And so what we see here is that um, they're going to give an account, that's the first thought, to someone, to him, and this is God. And God is characterized here as the one who is ready or prepared to judge the living and the dead. it's. I don't think it's really making a point about which judgment, although we'll talk about the different judgments. It's not making a point about which judgment, but that God judges and that there is accountability eventually, that there is a payday someday. And that term payday is actually a very good term for this, because of the language that is given here uh, for giving an account. And the main verb there is the verb apodidomi, which is to pay back or to give back, and it is an accounting term also, to render a payment for services. And the word that is translated an account is an unusual word to be translated this way, uh, but it but it was used this way, and that's the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, the word, and the word was with, um, and the word was with God, and the word was God. They will give an account. The verb legizomai, which is a word that we uh, that is translated as imputation or reckoning, is an accounting term. And so it, it, Lagos has a huge range of meaning. It can mean thinking, it can mean word, it can be thing, it can be event. So they're going to uh, give, uh, give a word or an explanation or an accounting to him. There will be accountability. Now, in this context, it's talking about accountability for unbelievers, There's accountability, (coughs) I think, for believers. That's at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about that later. But this account is talking about the kind of accounting that will be given by uh, by the unbelievers. Now, what's interesting is that twice before, Peter has talked about this. 
And in verse 17 of chapter 1, he talks about calling on the Father. Uh, In the midst of suffering, unjust suffering, you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. God is a faithful, righteous judge who will judge according to each one's work. He's omniscient, so he knows all the facts. He knows the thinking, the motivation, everything. And so there the warning is to believers that we're to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear, that is, in the fear of the Lord, because there is accountability. There will be judgment eventually. Verse 23, uh, talking about Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. That's exactly what we're seeing here in in verse 4, is there's this reviling of the the, uh, believers. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That goes right back to Genesis 18. It is God who judges righteously. So Jesus puts it in the hands of the Father that he will deal with those who have unjustly persecuted him eventually. Maybe not at that moment, not at that day, but eventually they will be judged by him who judges righteously. So we get into some uh, interesting uh, passages that talk about this. And I'll just start with the first one, that we have this same kind of um, of language. Let me see here. I don't need to. Here we go. We have different passages that talk about um, this this issue. Uh, of, of accounting, and that this is a, a judicial term and a term that is used in the courtroom to give an account for uh, to give an account for something. In Luke sixteen two, it's a parable about stewardship, and one of the stewards is not faithful. But uh, And so his master calls him and says, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. This is a legal-type setting that he has to produce the books to be audited to make sure that he is faithful as a steward. So that shows that background there. And it's the same language. It's the same verb for give, and it's logos for account. Another example comes out of Acts 19.40. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly uh, gathering. Now, if we were to go back and look at this, what's happening in, in Acts... I don't know why that's not going there. In Acts 19.40 is that there's this riot that's occurred in Ephesus because of the teaching of Paul and Barnabas... I mean, excuse me, Paul and Timothy and the others that were with him, uh, Titus, on their, um, about the idolatry in Ephesus. And as a result, the silversmiths who are making the little figurines of, uh, of Artemis of the Ephesians, who's uh, very popular, they make a lot of their money uh, selling those, and people are beginning to quit buy, beginning to quit buy them, quitting, quitting to buy them. And so they... Um, they they riot, they get everybody all stirred up, and so the city manager, as it were, is going to come out and try to calm down the crowd, and he says to them that if you continue with this riot and tear everything up, then we're going to have to give an account for this disorderly gathering, and so he eventually talks them down, but that's the idea. It's a legal term. In uh, Hebrews... Uh, 13, 17, what we find is a similar situation. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. And this is really talking about the leadership in the local church. Be submissive to the pastor and the 
uh, elders or deacons in the congregation. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out uh, for your souls as those who must give an account. This is a very sobering verse for anybody who is in church leadership and anybody who is a pastor that we will be held to account for how we shepherd the souls, how we feed the souls of those in the congregation because we must give an account. It's the same language that, and the same words that's used in First Peter 4, 5. So all of this is that legal language. Now, one thing I want to do is just begin looking at this. I want you to turn to Matthew 12. This is one of those passages that I think is often... Uh, taken out of context and abused to scare believers. I mean, giving an account at the judgment seat of Christ, all these other things we'll talk about, and that, of course, I think is very sobering. But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes this statement, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. And so I've heard sermons where you better be careful every word that comes out of your mouth because you're going to have to uh, give an account for it when you stand before the Lord. That ignores the context of the passage. If we look at Matthew uh, 12, 12.36, we back up a little bit. We learn that Jesus is in a conflict, an argument with the Pharisees. They're unbelievers. They have rejected him as the Messiah. He has already announced the judgment on them for this unforgivable sin. It's not that they can't be forgiven and be saved, but that they, as a nation, they represent the nation, and this sin of rejecting him as the Messiah will have consequences. And so the unforgivable sin is unique to that generation, and it results in the judgment of A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says, and he's talking about them, in verse 34 he calls them again a brood of vipers. This is literally the serpent's seed. Now who's the serpent? The serpent is Satan. They are, later on he calls them, uh, says they are from their father the devil. This is the same language that he uses over in uh, John uh, eight, that they are of the father, the devil. He's saying the same thing. They're not believers and that they will, uh, out of their mouth, they say good things and <clears throat> out and, and sometimes they say good things and it comes out of their heart. And he goes on to describe that. And it's in the context of those sayings saying one, you're the Messiah are saying, two, you're not the Messiah. Now, what they're saying is you're not the Messiah. They're going to, that's an idle word. They're going to give an account for that. He's not talking about Christians giving an account for every idle word. He's talking about the religious leaders of Israel are going to give an account for these worthless words that are, a, that are the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So this is not talking about the fact that as believers we're going to give an account for every every word. Now we'll talk about some other issues related to the judgment seat of Christ, but this passage isn't talking about believers, it's talking about unbelievers, and the idle word has to do with uh, assaults on the veracity of Scripture and the claims of Jesus uh, to be the Messiah. The next verse says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, we're not justified. We don't get salvation by what we say or by what we uh, condemn, unless those words are accepting the gospel and accepting Jesus for who he claims to be. So by your words you will be justified. That has to do with accepting Jesus as Messiah. And by your words you will be condemned. That's rejecting Jesus as Messiah and his offer of salvation. Those are the idle words. So contextually, you have to understand that this is not talking about 
everybody. It's not talking about just making idle statements and uh, telling an off-color joke or dirty joke or whatever at some point, or even gossiping or maligning somebody uh, or saying words in anger. It's not talking about that. In this context, it's talking about words that are related to either accepting or rejecting Jesus as Messiah. So we'll end there in this study. We have to remember that uh, there will be accountability. The accountability for the believer is different than for the unbeliever. We will all be held accountable, but for the person who believes in Jesus, the destiny is always heaven because Christ died on the cross for our sins. We're forgiven completely and totally, and therefore there are no consequences for those sins in eternity in terms of our eternal destination. However, if we don't redeem the time, then there will be a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ because the focus there is on how well we serve the Lord and the focus is on what we did right, not on what we did wrong. So we'll come back and look at those issues next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, the opportunity to be Uh, a little more clear on some difficult passages in Scripture, and to come to understand that there will be great injustice in the devil's world, and there will be the appearance of those who are getting away with it. But no one gets away with it under your righteousness and your justice, and there will be accountability. And we have to trust in you, as as, uh, Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. When it's all said and done... We will praise you for your just and righteous decisions and the way you have dealt with everyone in human history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.